Hi, you're listening to Melanie Mergen from the Globe Gazette. Thanks for joining us for episode number two of our new podcast in partnership with Right on the Park, 2021, 10 Successful Years of the Historic Park Inn. Now, 2021 marks the 10th anniversary of the completed restoration of Mason City's Historic Park Inn Hotel. Here with us today is Scott Borcherding, who has previously served as president of Right on the Park and is a partner and interior designer with local architecture firm Berglund and Cram. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Something you also did was you played a significant role in the restoration project for the Historic Park Inn 10 years ago, correct? That is very correct, yes. And actually, our firm's involvement with the buildings started even before Right on the Park existed. Um, When the buildings were kind of up for discussion um, 20 years ago or so, there was talk of them being torn down because they were so dilapidated. Um, There was an attempt to sell them on eBay when eBay was really kind of at its height. And then there was another potential owner that was looking at creating income-based housing. And that path um, was valid for a while, but obviously it did not uh, come to fruition. That's when Right on the Park kind of developed locally as a group to spearhead the restoration of the City National Bank building and the Park Inn Hotel building. So we have been kind of seeing that corner of Mason City you know, from its very first potential through through its completion. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about considering where it is now and how good it looks downtown. It's interesting to think about all those different paths it could have taken when those options were being considered. Yeah, you know, growing up and being a Mason City native, I didn't really know anything about it until I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And then curiosity kind of got peaked. And then I just started to learn a little bit more and it was always so kind of just ignored when you were downtown because it was it was occupied but it had been modified so greatly that you really didn't realize what potential it had until you spent a lot of time kind of focusing on it there's so much that you could get into with the whole restoration project um And we're going to focus on that more in depth in a future episode, too. But today, we're all time traveling back to the original grand opening that took place over a century ago in 1910. Now, on the last episode, Pat Schultz told us that the Park Inn Hotel story began during this time of rapid growth in Mason City that was really exciting for a lot of people at the time. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, I think a lot of that is attributed to like the the rail industry and just the ability to move goods, you know, across the country, the ability to travel, you know, west of the Mississippi and um, and just start settling down and, you know, pl- people planting their own roots. Um, Mason City was huge for um, brick and tile building products in the early 1900s, and, and it just kind of boomed locally and downtown Mason city was, was the result of that. Um, Like you mentioned in the early 1900s, there was, there were three banking institutions located on one intersection. So three of four corners were occupied by 
separate banks. It's a pretty dense population for a community, you know, that was just, you know, maybe two or 3,000 people at the time. That industry also got really competitive. And that's kind of what really developed this intersection, we could say, state and Maine or state and federal where the buildings are located. Um, but the City National Bank needed to expand. Two of the board members of City National Bank kind of spearheaded that process for the bank and recognized Frank Lloyd Wright as being the architect of a building in Spring Green, Wisconsin, where their children went to school. So that was their immediate connection to Wright, contacted him to design a bank building. The bank would then also um, incorporate law offices and a hotel component. So even as early as 1910, it was really unusual to have this many different kind of professional entities in one building. You know, most common was a business on first floor and maybe residential on second floor or smaller offices on second floor. But this was kind of a unique use of, of this corner. Um, but at the same time, First National Bank building was going up Kitty Corner and their mission was bigger is better. Then after the completion of the bank, you know, the, there was an agricultural crisis in the 20s that affected Mason City greatly. And the city national bank closed and the building was severely altered within less than 20 years of its, its opening. And a lot of people just didn't recognize it anymore because it was so severely altered. And when you say severely altered, how, how had it changed? Well, the, maybe the best way for me to do this is kind of step backwards a little bit and start with the bank building specifically and just kind of describe what Wright had intended for the building you know, as a place for people to keep their money um, that they have earned, you know, from hard work and investments and things like that. His idea was to design the City National Bank building to kind of evoke the idea of a strong box or a very secure place for your money to be. Um, so he designed what was originally a two-story building um, that stepped up from the main sidewalk and there were really no windows on first floor to just kind of keep that secure feeling going. And once you were inside, you were you would approach the, the teller cages that were kind of centrally located in the bank. All around the perimeter were clear story windows that would let daylight into the public banking spaces. There was a large vault toward the west end of the banking floor and then you could access the basement for some supplemental space down there. First floor also had some office space for the bank president, um, conference space, and other officers you know, that were critical to the function of the bank. They were located on the south side of the main floor, some unique skylights that are still in place. Um, but again, I'm kind of highlighting an area where daylight was coming in. So we're going to start talking about a little bit of a design component that he used in his public buildings. So he had a very spacious single-story bank space with offices on the second floor. The, the clear-story windows were covered with iron grills, which would continue that secure, safe place for your money. The, the bank itself also had some interior features that were 
um, really unique to his projects. In fact, we only know of one other project where he used this element, and that was to embed iridescent glass in the mortar joints. And he there's a there's a horizontal band in the banking space, and it's the mortar joints above that band where he embedded this glass. So when the daylight comes in through the clear story windows, it reflects off of this glass, and it reflects gold and green, both of which are money colors, right? So it was it, it's a very cool element. It's a beautiful element, but it's subtle at the same time. So it was a, a very well thought out project as far as the banking industry goes. But like I mentioned, the ag crisis of the 1920s um, happened and City National Bank was a victim of that crisis. So this portion of the building was severely altered and was probably the most difficult to imagine it ever being original because it was altered by 1926. 27, 28 was when it happened. So we only had photographs of it after it had been altered. There were a few postcards from the very beginning, but a lot of our evidence and history research was post-remodeling. So when you kind of imagine stepping outside the bank building again, there are some recurring elements that Wright uses in all of his Prairie School projects. Prairie School by nature has a relationship with nature and has long horizontal lines, kind of appears to hug the, the earth that it is on. And he executes that with his brick patterns that he uses, um, stone banding around buildings, rows of windows. They're often referred to as ribbon windows. Just accentuate that horizontality of his designs. Broad overhangs on the roof, you know, just kind of continue to um, accentuate that. They also provide some protection, you know, to the sidewalk below. Um, coincidentally, he didn't always engineer things the best um, or the way we do today. So there, we it wasn't unusual to run into some compromised areas or structural failures that had to be remedied during the restoration. I think you're going to get into that in a later episode. Yeah, that's so interesting to, to hear about how detailed he could get with some of these things, like the the subtlety of that green and gold iridescence. I had never heard that before. Even the location of this property being across the street from Central Park, he took influence from that, again, because there, it was green and there, was, there were trees growing. And you can kind of imagine some of those natural elements in the other design components that he uses in the building. Um, and some of those components carry on from the bank over to the hotel, like the light fixtures that you see out by the front doors of the bank now that we had recreated. They kind of have a, a tree trunk branch sort of volume at the top where it just, if you think about it as a geometric tree, it makes a lot of sense. And that's what he was taking from right across the street. So while they might be hard, rigid lines, they still kind of evoke that form. Another one of Frank Lloyd Wright's um, common traits in all of his buildings were custom art glass. And those are often very unique to the properties that they're found. Um, I mentioned earlier about the 
kind of the conference room or boardroom and the executive offices for the those that operated the bank. Um, there are three un, three unique skylights in that area of the building. And that's a one-story area of the building. So it kind of appears detached from its neighbors and stands independently and very proud on the corner. Um, those three skylights coincidentally were buried between layers of roofing and layers of ceiling material through the whole life of the building. Um, the previous owner of the building discovered them when he was doing some roofing work, took them out, stabilized them and stored them so they would not be damaged anymore. Um, we had those restored by John Larson, uh, who is a stained glass artist out of Clear Lake, and they've been reinstalled and are just gorgeous element within the banking facility itself. So you, you start to see some of those patterns happening there, a little bit happening by the front door. You'll see some art class, and he carries that around to other areas of the building as well. And it sounds like this whole process of going back and figuring out what was originally there for the beginning and then trying to sort of reincorporate that for the restoration was just kind of a difficult process. What was your process like of researching and then trying to figure out how that original space was like? Doing the research on this project was was interesting in a lot of ways. Um, we knew that the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation had original drawings to the project and we were in contact with them and requested duplicates of them. During our first request, they were unable to duplicate them because it would require moving them from one building to another to do it. And the climate outdoors in Arizona was such that they did not want to take the paper outside. Um, so there was a bit of a delay in that. You know, so they cherish these original drawings because it's their only copy and that all makes sense. We eventually did get what we call a half-size set. So everything was reduced to 50%. But um, we could see what Wright's intentions were with the building in a lot of the design elements, the light fixtures, um, so a lot of the trim work, you know, and other unique details to the project. But Pat mentioned, you know, how Wright came to Mason City. You know, he was here to kind of do the design work and then the construction started and Wright never came back because of his personal choices that he decided to, to um, take. So the construction was overseen by William Drummond from Chicago. And that kind of created a question for us of, was it executed the way Wright wanted it executed or was it modified on the site by the developers Blythe and Markley you know to to change things or make things a little bit different at the same time as we kind of started doing demolition and deconstruction of everything that had been done over the first 95 plus years of its life we could start to see some evidence of what used to be there um, so that helped quite a bit but I think my personal opinion is that residents of Mason City were kind of disgusted with Wright and they were glad it was done, but it wasn't photographed a lot, you know, and I don't know if that was just kind of a snob sort of reaction to the situation. But like I mentioned, we had some historic photographs that were postcards of the exterior. We really had nothing of the interior. So we relied solely on kind of ghosts of 
days past that would tell us what was there and maybe what was not. So it, uh, you know, we did a lot of, there were interviews done with people who had worked in the building over the course of, you know, 1930s, 40s, 50s, any sort of recollection. Um, but really the, the buildings kind of, especially the hotel, it had just kind of a bad vibe with it. And a lot of parents told their kids to walk on the other side of the street. And it just wasn't, it wasn't what downtown Mason city needed. You know, it, it's what happened, but coincidentally the reason it happened is because the the same family that built the first national bank building kitty corner the bigger better bank they also built a hotel two blocks north so there was a competing hotel with the park inn hotel and the amenities were a little bit better rooms were a little bit bigger and they they did what they had to do with the park inn to to keep it open and so when you were going through on this crazy scavenger hunt to look into these details from the original were there any design elements that were surprising to you or any like favorite things that you discovered as you were looking into all that well i you know the i mentioned earlier the iridescent glass um that was not noted on the drawings that was only realized after layers of plaster and drywall came down uh the one of the contractors on the job called our office and said I don't know if I want to tell you this, but you should probably come down and look at it because they knew what we were going to want to do once we saw it. And that was recreate it. You know, we had elements of it, so we had to refinish it. But um, for me, a lot of it was in the light fixtures. Um, and while not all of them are original or original design to the building, the, the light fixtures at the front doors of the bank um, the light fixtures at the front doors of the hotel, and then on second floor in the law lounge um, where the law offices were, we had some original light fixtures recreated. And they're just quintessential, frankly, right. And I was thrilled when they were done and were shipped to Mason City and we were able to install them because it was just that extra effort that he put into the project um, that made ours just as unique as every other right site. Um, you know, there were, there were other design elements that we knew of from the drawings or that had been remnants in the building, you know, kind of moving over to the hotel side. Um, the hotel was originally designed with 43 guest rooms. They were all 10 by 10. Two guest rooms shared one bathroom so it's kind of a, like, we call it Jack and Jill bathroom, you know, where there's a bedroom on either side of the bathroom. Um, and the doors to the guest rooms were all louvered for air ventilation. And that amenity seems great. But once you think about noise, all of a sudden, it's not so great. So a lot of those doors were either removed or covered up or um, just modified to, to get more privacy. So it's neat to go down the hallways now and see that again and kind of just really get what he was trying to accomplish in 1910. The hotel building, um, so we'll call that kind of the west end of the complex. Um, the hotel building was, again, kind of another mixed-use sort of structure. The, the entrance to the hotel, there were two of them on either side of kind of the main front window. They're very recessed and kind of protected. But 
very typical sort of design thing that Wright did was to kind of compress the entries that you went through. So once you got through the door, the space would open up. Um, and once you were through the door, you were greeted by the the check-in desk, a couple of concierge desks, and um, historically the the mezzanine that was over the the check-in desk. Harkening back to his inability to really engineer things correctly, that mezzanine failed very early on because of the span from east to west. That was something that we never saw in photographs, but we were able to see evidence of it once we started doing demolition. So you're you're compressed at the front door, you get inside and you're you're released in the front lobby. And then as you walk to the registration desk, you're compressed again because you're underneath of the mezzanine. Um, then you can you can go either left or right and go back into the skylight room. Then you're released again. And then you have the skylight above you, which was, again, original to the building, but failed very early on because we're in North Iowa and our winters are harsh and um, not to mention rain during, you know, those seasons. So that skylight was removed very early on. Uh, the mezzanine failed very early on. That just changed the whole, the whole atmosphere of, of the whole experience of what guests would get. Um, but the, then like the east and west bay, as we would call it, those were designed for other businesses to occupy on first floor. So really, you could be a guest of the hotel and have restaurant you know or shop barber shops um they're on his original drawings that the west bay was supposed to be newspaper offices coincidentally um we don't know that that ever happened because the newspaper was located in a building right across the alley um but there was a billiards you know downstairs mason city being notorious for billiards and pool thanks to meredith wilson um it's a uh, it became a very mixed use sort of building. Then you could get upstairs and get into uh, the guest rooms and the balcony, a ladies' parlor area. And, you know, it was just a, definitely a different era that uh, people experienced and how you, how you did things. Uh, the ladies' parlor on second floor was really for traveling salesmen to come in and set up their, their wares and women would come and look at them, order them, et cetera. Um, and then they can have tea out on the patio, that sort of thing. And then there were guest rooms on the rest of second floor. But it was second floor is also where Blythe and Markley's law firm had their home. You know, and as them being responsible for commissioning Wright to come here, um, kind of ramped up the design of their law firm. Um, so you kind of see elevated finishes, that's where the really nice light fixtures are, um, mahogany paneling, and um, a small balcony, you know, for for that area. And we still have the vault the frame is still there from the from that law firm is still still there. So it's kind of a neat space to be in, and almost one hundred percent historically accurate. It's pretty cool. Room two thirty is the guest room right off of the law lounge. And so it faces Central Park and it's kind of isolated from all the other rooms. And it's not a big room by any means, but it's it's one of my favorites just because that space is right outside your door. 
you know, you might hear a little bit more traffic of, you know, people wandering around and exploring, but you've got a view to Central Park. You've got the the Law Lounge area right there, and it's just a pretty intimate, warm space. When Wright designed this building, he kind of connected the banking portion and the hotel portion with an area that we always referred to as the central waste, you know? So if you kind of think upper torso and legs and a waist in the middle kind of connected the two, it was the central waste area that was the, the main entrance for the law firm that commissioned right to um, come to Mason city. So it's highlighted with an urn on the outside as a point of entry and recessed in. So you kind of get that compressed experience again. Then once you're inside, you were able to go up to second floor to the law offices. Then if you move to the West a little bit more, you know, you get to the main hotel building. And again, he continued a lot of those horizontal lines that started in the bank building over to the hotel. Windows were organized such that they were kind of created these ribbons around corners or, you know, in the middle of a wall. Um, the balcony protrudes a little bit, but it has all that same stone banding, you know, that just keeps that horizontal feature very strong on the exterior. A couple urns on either corner of the balcony. Um, ironically enough, these urns were never hollow or never dished out to hold anything. Maybe that was because we have snow and wicked winters and they would just, you know, freeze thaw would, would be tough on them. Um, but those two urns on the balcony survived the whole life of the building. The urn that was from the, the lawyer's entry um, had been gone for a long time. So we had that recreated for, for the project. But uh, the art glass patterns continue. You know, they started a little bit at the bank entry. Then when you get to the front of the hotel, they kind of frame the picture windows on either bay. And then there's a, it might be about 14 feet long, one piece of art glass at the hotel lobby. Um, and if you're ever inside the hotel lobby, look it up, maybe from the, from the mezzanine, look out through that art glass and you'll kind of start to see that tree trunk branch design element that he incorporated into, into the project. One of Wright's goals that we kind of realized late in this project, and this was after working with some other experts of Frank Lloyd Wright, um, and I, I believe it was Jonathan Lippman that realized this, especially in the project here at Mason City, was that any place that was occupied by the public should have daylight. So... Like when I mentioned in the bank building, the conference room and the offices, you know, they have skylights. The, the main banking room has the clear story windows that allow the daylight to get in. Even the light wells along the sidewalk would allow daylight into the spaces in the basement that the public would occupy. The skylight of the hotel behind the, the check-in desk allowed daylight into the innermost portion of the hotel, you know, in the kind of the unique horseshoe shape of the room layout, lets more windows be afforded to the guest rooms. So that was kind of an interesting concept to actually realize. Um, but then again, when, now when I walk through it, this makes sense now why, why he had windows, interior windows, because people were occupying space on the other side of it. And if they could get a, get a glimpse of sunlight, 
then it was worth it. And I think, I don't think anybody would really argue with that, you know, being isolated in a box with no windows is not how you want to spend most of your day. When the Park Inn Hotel first opened, it, it also had a tagline of being European. So it was the European Park Inn Hotel or the Park Inn European. Um, and to the best of our knowledge, that is um, kind of assigned to it because two guest rooms would share a bathroom. The guest rooms each had their own sink, but two rooms would share tub and um, commode. So that was kind of the European aspect of it. Travelers, small rooms, you don't spend a lot of time there, um, that sort of thing. But um, 43 rooms were set up that way. And there was never a, 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 a lot of privacy, you know, afforded for people that were staying there. And, and while it might have been the height of height of design at the time it just wasn't what people wanted um and that's when the hanford hotel was built just two blocks to the north and gave people the privacy they wanted a little bit more space you know maybe a little bit nicer amenity um so it kind of became the hotel downtown mason city and then the park inn kind of became a more probably a little bit more affordable we would say um place to stay for, for those that were maybe just traveling overnight by train or what have you. Um, but that's really kind of the European component of it, would just kind of be how the rooms were organized with other facilities. I guess I've heard in the past design-wise, one thing Frank Lloyd Wright wanted for architecture was to, for American architecture to distinguish itself from Europe, correct? Yeah, Wright really wasn't, probably so much a fan of copying um, other styles of architecture very early in his career. Some of his, his projects had a kind of a Victorian sort of influence to them or where maybe they were remodeled projects where a Victorian home was, was modified, but he really wanted to kind of avoid the classics, if you will. Um, and a lot of those, you know, back then were reserved for financial institutions and churches and uh, maybe libraries. A lot of the Carnegie libraries had a very classic look to them, but he really being, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, at heart um, was really of the prairie and, you know, of the Midwest where things are low and relatively flat and just wanted to evoke that and thought, you know, this design style was really appropriate for, for our region. But he, he really, right, really did want to, you to see the beauty and the simplicity of things rather than all of the extra ornament that would make things excessive. I can tell you that I don't care how many times you're in that building, you will probably see something different or have just a, a unique aha moment of, I get it, now it makes sense. And now the next time any of us are downtown or inside the park in, we'll have all these design element Easter eggs to look for. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of 2021, 10 Successful Years of the Historic Park Inn. We'll be back next month to bring you more of the Parkins' fascinating history. Thanks for listening.